Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, I got the great joy to go to Texas. Uh, if you know, know, I was born in Texas and lived there for a while. Joanna and I went to school there. My parents and a lot of my family now live in Texas. And so we went for one of Asher's soccer tournaments, but then we got to see a lot of family while we were there. It was a great time to go. Uh, I love that I get to spend time with my sister. My sister Amy now lives there in Texas, and she actually works for a local Texas, Texas representative in the state house there in the town she lives in. She works with them. And so she always kind of had her phone with her and kind of working in different times we were around. And so I watched her do this over and over when she would answer the phone. It kind of became the running joke during the week is that most of the phone calls she gets are people just being really, really mad at her. That people call the office and they're upset at something that's going on. And so oftentimes she just gets, she gets multiple phone calls a day where somebody's just kind of laying into her and letting her have it and really telling her and all these things. And she said, that's kind of part of my job now that she's having this all the time and these messages. And I was thinking about just, uh, one, I'm glad that's not my job, but, uh, she's dealing with that all the time. But why is that the case? Why are people so angry and what's going on? I, I read a book a couple of years ago called, uh, the righteous mind, why good people, um, are so divided over politics and religion. And it's by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. And uh, he's not a believer. Uh, he's a neuroscientist and does all this kind of research. And he was talking about some of the reasons. And he's spelling out how we've gotten to this place in our culture where people are so divided and they're so angry and what's coming out of that. There's a lot of studies right now that are saying that not only is there great division, but in the last couple of years, we're more angry than we've ever been, that we're quick to to kind of lash out when we disagree. And and I believe it as I watch my sister answer those phone calls and the the phone calls that were coming. But in this book, uh, what he talks about is oftentimes he uses this great analogy. He says that our emotion is like an elephant and our intellect is like the rider on top of the elephant. And as soon as the elephant takes off running, it's very hard to stop it or slow it down. That we get angry and we get upset or we re react to things and we kind of bubble over and it's really hard to kind of rein that in. And so some of the research and what they've been saying and looking at the world is that's happening more and more. There's more division and there's more people that are grounded in what they think. Uh, we live in a lot of ways in different silos, right? We, we listen to, to, we intake media or news or different things from stuff that we kind of agree with and we like. And so then it, it, it leads to that and those people over there are wrong and it, and it bubbles up in anger. And we see that all around us. It's, it's kind of the world that we live in today. And so many people angry and so many people disagreeing on different things and kind of doubling down on what they think and all that goes with that. But then sadly, the way that we interact and the way that our culture works a lot of times today is one, we either, uh, I think we kind of embrace two ways, big ways in our culture right now. One is like the cancel culture. If you hear somebody that you don't like and they're wrong or you think they're unjust or they did made some big mistake or they did whatever, you have nothing to do with them. You cancel them. Don't talk about them. Don't talk to them. We don't want to have anything to do with this person, boycott them, all those kind of things. And, and that seems to be rampant in our culture. That happens a lot today. Or I think maybe the, the other side of that that happens quite a lot is what I call like the attack and ridicule. It's not cancel, but it's go right at them and tell them how dumb they are and they're an idiot and they're so stupid and how could anyone think that? And that becomes the way in which a lot of our public discourse happens today. And we see that particularly politically, and we see it in a lot of different avenues. We see it in the news. We even see it in the way we get information. Everything's kind of put to us that way. It's either this or that. And you know why they do that, right? 
They do that because you engage more when you're angry. If you really get upset and you really don't like it, then you're more likely to click and engage than you are if you just read a story and you kind of passively take the information. And so what happens is we're really angry. And a lot of that is going on around us. And the sad part, though, is I think even as believers, we get sucked into that. And the church starts to be discipled by the culture. And we start to look just like the culture. And we're all like the elephant. Uh, We're all the rider on our own elephant going off in different directions. And all of this is happening. And so I just want to remind you, as we begin, as we're going to look at this story this morning, something that the Bible says in James chapter 1. James 1 verse 19 says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I think in our culture right now, we've embraced the opposite. We're slow to hear and we're quick to speak and we're quick to be angry and we're quick to lash out and we're quick to do all those things. But what the Bible tells us is that doesn't produce the righteousness of God. That that doesn't work, that God's not calling us as this faithful remnant that's seeking to follow him and to love him and to be a light in the world that we're not called to live in those ways. And so it's difficult though. It's difficult because that's what's kind of the water we're swimming in. It's the world we live in. It's the way people operate. We're bombarded with messages There's really powerful algorithms on your phone that are meant to kind of tweak you and get you engaged and all these kind of things. And it's difficult. So what do we do in the midst of a world that looks like that? And I want us to think today that we, when we ask that question, well, what is the answer? The answer is that we look to Jesus, right? God came down and he stepped in fully God and fully man. And he shows us exactly the way we're created to live. And exactly what it looks like. And what he's calling us to as we are in him and we seek to follow him. And so we want to look to Jesus in the way that he operates in this space. And you go, well, wait, well, Jesus doesn't live today. How do we make that correlation? And one of the things I've been saying is we're working our way through the gospels. We've been moving through chronologically all four of the gospels. And here we're getting very close to the end. We're going to take a break for the next month on a sermon series, and then we will pick up with the last week of Jesus's life. That's where we are now. He's about to go into Jerusalem for the very last time, the very last week. But one of the things I've been telling you as we've been walking through that, reminding you is that this idea of division and people being angry and upset and frustrated, Jesus, that's not something that was foreign to him. In his life that he lived in, he lived in a time where there was great division And there were all sorts of things swirling around him. I've been telling you this all the way through, right? The the Israelites, the Jewish people, are an occupied people by a brutal empire, the Roman Empire during this time. Jesus lived in a in a time that we often refer to as the Pax Romana. It means Roman peace. And there was about a two hundred year period where the Romans had conquered pretty much everything, and they said it was the Roman peace, and you go, Oh, that sounds good. Sounds like a good thing. Jesus got to live during this time of the Roman peace, but it's deceptive name. The reason there was peace was because if you cross Rome in any way, they killed you. That was that was the way it worked. Right. We're going to keep the peace because if you say anything bad against Caesar or against the government or what's happening, we will put you on a cross and we will crucify you publicly and we will turn and point and say, this is what happens when you cross Rome. That's why there was peace. 
And so that's the way they operated. But in order to operate that way and have a military presence that quickly kills anyone that gets steps out of line, it's expensive. So expensive, in fact, that if you were an occupied people, the Romans taxed you to the tune of about 80 to 90% of your income. 80 to 90% so that they could kill you if you get out of line. And so the Roman peace is kind of a misnomer. Didn't feel like that if you were living under it. And so Jesus lived in a time where there was great division. Right? He, he had a disciple called Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was someone who wanted to overthrow the government. Who was adamantly opposed. He had all sorts of this, these dynamics working even in his own disciples. He had Matthew who was a tech, tax collector who used to work for the Romans. And then he had Simon the Zealot right next to him. And all this is right here in front of him. And so when we think about what is it like to live in the midst of division and people being angry and how do we follow Jesus, Jesus knows exactly what it's like. It's not foreign to his experience when he walked on the earth. And so we start to think about Jesus and how that works. And today we're going to look at a very familiar story, the story of Zacchaeus. And you may not think about it, but all these things actually kind of come together in the story of Zacchaeus. Now, you may not think of it that way because if you grew up in the church, you maybe remember Zacchaeus from vacation Bible school or Sunday school, right? I don't know. I can tell if you grew up in church or not if you know the song about Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, a wee little man. Was he, you remember this? Yeah. You remember that story and it's all about, right? You sang the song as a kid and Zacchaeus was a little guy and he couldn't see Jesus. So he ran ahead and he climbs the tree and he climbs the sycamore tree and all that. And you sing the song and you go, yeah. But what you don't remember when you were a kid and you were learning that song is that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector for the brutal empire that was ruling the people. And not only was he the chief tax collector for the brutal empire that was taxing you to the tune of 80 to 90 percent, he was also adding a little on top of everybody he taxed so he could line his own pockets. And he was incredibly wealthy because he took advantage of his own people. And it's like, this is who this guy is. He's a difficult person to like. If you put him in the way that we operate today, if ever there's someone that you want to attack or ever there's someone that we will all agree, well, this is the guy that we should cancel. It's Zacchaeus. He's that guy. He's the guy that you go, oh, can't stand that guy. And so I want us to think about that for a second. Because what happens is Jesus sees Zacchaeus and he's going to show us how do we respond to people like that in our life? How do we live today in a broken place that's really divided, that people are quick to go to anger? And Jesus shows us and he shows us here. And so the way I want us to look at this very familiar story, it's pretty short, is how do we respond in a world like that? How do we respond with people we vehemently disagree with? How do we respond? And then secondly, why like that? He's going to show us, but then why like that? I'm going to give you two reasons why it's like that. And so let's just think about how do you respond? And so if you know the story of Zacchaeus, it's a pretty simple story. There's not a whole lot here that's difficult to understand. Jesus comes into Jericho. He's passing through. Remember last week we saw him heal the blind man, Bartimaeus, who's right there on the edge of town of Jericho. This is in the same kind of setting. Throngs of people everywhere Jesus goes. He's about to make his final descent into Jerusalem. A lot of people, you even see this in the context of Luke chapter 19, believe he's about to overthrow the government. 
and he's about to become king. And so there's an excitement about Jesus and people are following him and people are there. And Zacchaeus, it tells us, hears that he's coming and he wants to see him. But he's a little guy. He's a short guy. And there's throngs of people everywhere and he can't get to him. He can't see. He can't even see him. He can't see over the crowd. And so what does Zacchaeus do? It says, verse three, seeking to see who Jesus was, but on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. So, right. You remember that from the kid's story? (laughs) He wants to see Jesus. He can't see him. So he runs ahead and he climbs a tree and he waits because Jesus is going to come by. And then what happens? Verse five. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And so Jesus sees Zacchaeus and he knows who he is, calls him by name. He knows what he's like. He knows his background. He knows his story. And he sees him there and he says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I'm coming to your house. And I don't want this to be lost. This is not hard to understand. It's kind of like it is today. But you go to someone's house. You go to their place. You allow them to invite you in. You share a meal together. In this culture, this is a sign of friendship. You're making a step and extending a friendship by even sitting down and having a meal together. It was a big deal in the culture. And so Jesus sees this guy that everybody doesn't like. He knows his background. He knows who he is. And what does he do? He does the exact opposite of what the culture wants him to do. Jesus could have garnered more attention and more excitement if he would have just turned and said, Zacchaeus, everybody hate that guy. And everybody goes, yeah, that's right. He's part of the government and he's the tax guy and he's taking advantage of us. He could have easily kind of stoked the crowd and he doesn't do that. He does the opposite. He does what's completely countercultural then, but even what's countercultural today. He says, I want to come to your house, Zacchaeus. Come down, I'm coming to your house. And I want you just to think about that for a second. The culture's really not that different then than it is today. We've been talking about this the last few weeks, of thinking about the difference between a religious spirit versus walking in the spirit of God. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the, the Pharisee praying And he's looking at the tax collector next to him. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. And he's making that comparison and he's looking down. He said, that's what a religious spirit looks like. When you think you're good with God based on what you do and how good you are, and you start to put other people, everybody else is in a category and you look down on them and you make comparisons. And that's what it looks like. That's, that's the culture Jesus is living in. And every time he steps into a situation where people are doing that and they're looking down their noses, what does Jesus do? He goes to the outcast. He goes to the person on the edge of society. He goes to the one that's struggling. He goes to the one that's a mess and he goes to them and he says, I want to come to your house. And what does everybody do? They groan and complain. It's just like today, just like cancel culture today or attack. How dare you be friends with that person? Don't you know what they believe? Right? You hear that type of thing all the time. And that's exactly what Jesus is dealing with. See, the truth is our culture may have changed a little bit, but the sinful heart that's underneath, it's the exact same. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. But what does he do? He says, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus. Jesus isn't looking for validation from the crowd. 
He's not looking to what the culture thinks on this. Remember, Jesus is the logos, the divine truth walking amongst us, showing us exactly what God is like. And he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And everybody grumbles and complains. But Jesus isn't worried about it. He goes right there and he invites them in. I want you to think about that. I just started reading a book. It's a book that I've heard about and I've read bits and pieces of it. And I kind of know the synopsis. But I just started reading last week. It's by a lady named Rosario Butterfield. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. If you've ever heard of this book. And her story is that she was kind of, she was a professor in her town, kind of uh, radically opposed to the gospel, to the Bible, to Jesus, these sorts of things. She was kind of writing some some articles for her local paper, uh, editorials. A local pastor was kind of writing the counterpoint to what she was saying, and she was like, oh, I can't stand this guy type thing. And what happens in her story is that this pastor and his wife started inviting her over. And they started to spend time with her, someone who diametrically opposed on everything. And her story is how God used this relationship to bring her to faith to put her faith in Jesus, and he radically changed her life. And she wrote this story. She wrote this book to say it was through the ordinary means of hospitality, of meeting me where I was and inviting me in and listening to my story and speaking the truth to me and loving me in the midst of it. And I want you to get that that's exactly what Jesus does here. Here's the guy that everybody's kind of united in their disdain for. And what does Jesus do? He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm going to come and spend time with you and I'm going to stay with you. And so he comes and he steps into that. He doesn't do it the way the world does it, but he shows us exactly what God is like and he begins to show us. And I want to be clear as we think about that. This is the clear command of scripture. We are to love people in the way that Jesus has loved us. Well, how is that? Or maybe we say, why like that? If that's what he's telling us and that's what he's showing us here, how do you respond? You go to those people and you love them, whoever those people are, those people. The truth is those people are just like you. They're just as sinful as you are. And they need Jesus just in the same way you do. But we like to put people in categories. Well, those are the really bad ones. But Jesus goes to them and he invites them in and he begins to spend time with them. So why like this? Why is that the answer? If we look at our world, and I'm really convinced that is the answer. That it's not to follow what the world says of cancel culture or attack or or mount it, get super angry, and I'm not going to talk to those people, and we're not like that. But it's to step in and love people and meet them where they are and invite them in. So why like that? And the answer is grace changes people. The answer is that you and I, if you know Jesus and you know who God is and you know what he's done for you in your life, you know that you're saved by grace. And to be saved by grace means that God gave you not what you deserve, but far better than what you deserve. That's who we are fundamentally as followers of Jesus. This is the bullseye on the target. We're saved by grace. We're people that are the recipients of something that we didn't deserve. That God in his grace did for us. We were just talking this morning in our equipping hour about how to read through the gospel of John with someone that doesn't yet know Jesus. And we said we have to be 
clear on what the gospel is from the very beginning when we start to talk about evangelism or what that means and sharing our faith. And what I said this morning as we looked at it and as we're thinking on that together is that if you distill the gospel down, it's this. We lost it all. Jesus gave it all. We get it all. That's the good news. We lost it all. We, in our sinfulness, rebelled against God and we cut off our relationship with him. Right from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, in the very beginning, God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know what that is? Trust me. That's what God's saying. Trust me with what's good and evil. Trust what I'm telling you as your creator and sustainer. I am the one that's got you. Trust me. And you know what we do? We go, I think I got this, God. I can do this on my own. And in so doing, we lose it all. We lose the relationship we were created for. We start to function in our sinfulness of ourselves and we make it about me and I turn inward and I don't love people in the way that I should and I don't love God in the way I should and we lose it all. We can't be in perfect relationship with a holy, righteous, perfect God as we're turning our backs on him. But the good news is right there in Genesis 3 and the whole of the story that comes after it in the Bible is that God says, I'm going to come and fix it. And he does. And Jesus comes and he comes to do for us what we've never done for ourselves and what we could never do for ourselves. He gives it all. Jesus steps in and does all of it. It's the whole of the Bible. Is our rebellion and God's faithfulness and his pursuit to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's the whole story all the way through. God is the one who's faithful. And his people, we turn our backs over and over and he continues to pursue. And Jesus comes. And he empties himself. He leaves his throne. And he steps down into humanity with us. And he lives the life that we haven't lived. And he dies the death that we deserve. And he takes our sin upon himself. And then he gives us, by grace, his perfect works. Do you see the entire story of everything we believe is rooted and grounded in the grace of God? We are saved by grace. He does it all. And then we get it all. Amazingly. He goes, come to me with all your mess and I will take all of it and I will restore you to relationship with me. And I will give you a glorious future and a hope and an assurance and a joy. And it's all because of what Jesus has done. Right? Hopefully I'm not telling you and saying that anything that you don't know as a follower of Jesus. You go, yes, that's the gospel. That's the good news. So where did we ever get the idea that the way in which to show people what that God is like is by being angry and attacking and and shutting them out and doing all these things that our culture does? We go, well, that's the way the world works. And Jesus stands in the middle and goes, no, it's not. It's not the way it works. That's not the way heart change comes. God saves us by grace. We stand by grace. And if you know Jesus, you know this, right? I don't have to convince you of that. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you know this, don't you? I'm a sinner and God showed me. And Jesus says, but I've done it for you. And it's by grace through faith. And you put your trust in him and you go, yes. Right? 
tell me I'm not alone, right? You know this is true. But I would even say to you, you know that experientially in your relationship with God, but you know that in your life, don't you? I can't think of a time in my life where I lose my temper and I get really angry and I yell at somebody and they go, oh, thanks. I see it now. (laughs) Can you? I can tell you a whole bunch of times when I bite my tongue and I go, I want to be Jesus to this person. And you be gracious and you be kind and you keep asking questions and you keep pointing to Jesus and you see their heart melt. I've seen that happen a lot. You know, we, we met right in here for prayer breakfast yesterday. And Steve knew who is, who's given his life to planting churches in Thailand came and told us about planting churches in Thailand. And it was awesome to hear what God's doing and the way he's working. But you know where his story started? He said, I was a guy, a young guy, kind of a mess in all these ways. And he said, the way God worked in my life is, is it was this, this couple. And they started inviting me over for dinner every night. And they just started to love me. And they started to sow it in my life and open their home to this kid that was kind of a mess. And he said, it changed my life that they invested in me and they loved me in that way. They did exactly what Jesus does here when he comes upon Zacchaeus. And everybody hates Zacchaeus. And everybody doesn't want to have anything to do with Zacchaeus. And he's straining to see who Jesus is. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And you go, why like that? It's because that's the way God works. That's what he looks like. That's what his grace looks like. That we come to know him in the way that we come to know him. It's by his grace he pursues us and he uses people in our life and he meets us where we are and he begins to speak the truth. I mean, think about what happens here with Zacchaeus. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus runs down and he's excited, right? Says he's he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And Jesus goes to his house. In verse eight, Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And then Jesus says, truly, or today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. And so he says, salvation has come. But here's the thing I want you to see. What happens here? Does Jesus call Zacchaeus down and say, you are a wretched sinner. And you're defrauding people and you're taking advantage of them. And how dare you do that? Go get right. Go sell that stuff and get it right. And then if you clean yourself up, then maybe I'll come to your house. No. He says, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus. And he meets him there. And he begins to love him and spend time with him. And you know what happens? The grace of God changes Zacchaeus' heart. He's convicted. Standing in the presence of the Lord, he's convicted. Oh, I have been defrauding people. I am doing this. I am taking advantage. I am lining my pockets. And so what does he do? He changes his ways. He repents. That's what repentance looks like. You're moving in one direction and then you turn and you stop and you move in the other direction. That's what he does. And he changes and his heart changes. And I want you to notice, this is not the main point of this sermon today, but it's an important one. As he changes, what does he do? He says, I'm giving this money away. And I'm going to restore fourfold. Friends, there's a very clear correlation between your pocketbook 
and what you spend money on and what you prize. This was a man that was eaten by money, right? He was defrauding people. He was taking advantage of them. He had become very rich doing so. This was the, the center of his being and who he was. That's why everybody hated him. And as soon as he meets Jesus and his heart is changed, suddenly money changes. And I just tell you, maybe you've heard this before, but it's a good reminder. You look at how you spend money and it will show you real clearly what you care about. That's the truth for all of us. You look at your, your ledger, you look at your checkbook or your app or whatever you use now. I don't have a checkbook anymore. <laughs> but you look at that and it tells you real clearly what you care about. And when God gets your heart and he begins to change you, and that's the thing I want you to see. How does that work? The grace of God moves in your life and then the heart change comes and then your behavior changes. So often we get that backwards. I'm going to cancel this person. I'm going to have nothing to do with it. I'm going to talk to them. I'm not going to do any of these things because they're not behaving the way I want them to behave. And we flip that. But what Jesus is calling us to is to meet them where they are and love them and step in and have those relationships with them. And then the heart change comes. Now, I want to be careful when we say that, though. That doesn't mean that you never speak the truth. You do. You see Jesus do this over and over. He goes to people and he spends time with them. And then what does he say? Repent. Come follow me. There is a call to repentance. There is a call to follow him. But it's always begun with this gracious step towards people and loving them and meeting them where they are and showing them the grace and the kindness of of Jesus and spending time with them and then beginning to ask those questions and call them to repentance. So often we get that backwards. And so when we say, why like this? God saves us by grace. Grace changes us. This is who God is. But then the second reason, and I'll be brief here and we'll end here this morning. The second reason like this is this is the fundamental call of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Notice that when everybody grumbles, verse 7, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. And he goes to his house and he spends time with him. And Zacchaeus repents and he says these things and God's changing his heart. And then you get to the end here and he says, Jesus speaks and says, salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. And then he says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. They grumble and they complain. And Jesus goes, this is why I'm here. I've come to call sinners to repentance. And this is what it looks like. And then right after that, the very next thing, as they heard these things, He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You hear what it says? They believe Jesus is going into Jerusalem and he's overthrowing government and they're going to install him as king and they're going to rule and reign and everything's going to be great. And that's what they've been looking towards. And so he then tells them this parable, which I didn't read to you for the sake of time. We're not going to look at the whole of the parable, but the parable is pretty simple. It's the parable of the 10 minas. You know what a minna is? You can look at your footnote in your Bible. It's three months salary. And so he tells this parable about a man who's going away. He's a rich landowner and he's going away and he calls his servants and he gives them all basically two and a half years salary. And he says, I'm going to be gone for a while. Do business while I'm gone. And he leaves and he goes on his way. And when he comes back, he finds that one guy has done quite a bit with it. And another one has done pretty much 
But then there's one guy that's done nothing. Nothing with what he was given. He just sat on it and did nothing. And the master comes back and goes, what were you doing? And Jesus tells this parable. And it says he tells this parable because they believed that he was about to come into his kingdom. But that's not the way it was going to go down. And Jesus knew that, right? How's it going to happen? Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem. And he's going to choose to lay his life down. And he's going to be crucified. And then he's going to raise again. And then he's going to say, go make disciples of all nations. That's where we live right now, just so we're clear. The parable he's talking about is for us, for us today. He's talking about the time in between his first and second coming, and he's called us to go make disciples. Now put all this together. He tells that parable in response to the people grumbling when he says, I came to seek and save the lost. Do you hear what he's saying? If you know Jesus and you know who he is, and you know what he's done in your life, and you've received the grace of God in your life, what else would you be doing in this time than going and sharing the grace of God with as many people as you can? And when the guy goes, but I I knew you to be harsh, and I'm afraid you were going to take what you gave me, and so I didn't want to mess it up. And You know what Jesus says? In, In essence, I'm paraphrasing here, you don't know who I am if that's what you think. That means you don't know the grace of God. If you're not extending the grace of God, then you've not received it. Think about it this way, what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. He says right at the end about how he will forgive, as long as you forgive others, you will be forgiven. There's a connection there that he makes about extending forgiveness with receiving it. I think the same is true in what he's telling in this parable. If you know who Jesus is and you know the grace of God in your life and you know what he's done for you, how could you not share it with others? How could that not be how, what marks us as people? Everything we have and everything that we are and everything that we will ever will be is because of the grace of God in our life. And what Jesus is saying is you go and do the same. This is why I came. And now I'm setting you free to go and do that. And he calls us to himself and then he tells us to go make disciples and to go and to do that. And so I want you to really think about that this morning as we end. Think about, well, how do we live in a world that looks like this? You show the grace of God. You love people in the way Jesus loved you. But then you personally, what does that look like in your life? It's loving the people that God's placed right in front of you. And if your faith becomes it's just me and God and it's just about us and I'm just going to hold on to it, we're just like the guys in the parable that aren't doing it. They aren't doing anything. Now hear me. You're saved by grace. You're not doing these things so that God accepts you. It's because God's accepted you and what he's done, just like Zacchaeus, that your heart is now changed and you have to tell people. Oh, that that would be us. That we'd be overwhelmed with the goodness of of who God is. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you don't operate the way our culture operates. That when we blow it, when we ignore you, when we rebel against you, when we sin, that you don't just cancel us, that you don't just attack, but that you continue to seek us. You continue to show us 
that your spirit moves and you convict us of our sin and you point us to Jesus and we just say thank you. We pray that we would be the same. We pray that the people that you've placed right in front of us, that we would love them in the ways that you have loved us. I pray for each person here today that you'd give us opportunities to love people in the ways that you have loved us as we leave this place this week, that it would all be for your namesake and your glory. And we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.